My name is Fiona Eastmond and this is Peers in a Pod about peer support working. Who are we? What do we do? Most importantly, what are our favourite biscuits? I am utterly privileged today to be joined by Angela. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Angela Kin and I am today's Peer in a Pod. So we've got some lovely questions here. The very first question is, what is peer support? Peer support to me is something you and I are doing right now. It's something that has made a huge impact on my life, although it comes in many forms. So when I first came across peer support, it wasn't called that, and it isn't necessarily called that, but it is simply where you have common experiences and you are helping each other or in groups, usually to recover your life, to recover from your mental health difficulties. And it's a powerful thing. In terms of my job role, that's when it becomes professionalised and within mental health services. Mm. But there's lots of peer support that exists outside of that context and that's just as important yeah there are so many definitions of peer support I just remember constantly being asked it's why I've made it the first question because it was something I used to get asked pretty much daily well strange you see because I would say without any overstatements that peer support in its broadest sense saved my life and I often tell this story But it's a true story, which is that when I was really seriously unwell and in in the middle of the psychiatric system with all that goes with that, with lots of going in and out of hospital, when actually I had multiple problems by that point. I had bipolar, I had addiction problems, I was in a highly abusive relationship. Yeah, I was very much trapped in very serious trouble, actually. I had lots of uh, mental health professionals who told me I could recover, but I didn't believe them. The reason I didn't believe them is I didn't know anybody who had any kind of recovery from the kind of difficulties I had. All of the people around me were not recovering, basically. They either had very serious addiction problems, very serious mental health problems, or both and they weren't recovering. They were struggling as much as I was. So, of course, I didn't believe it was possible to recover because it, it looked like a theoretical possibility, what the you know clinical people were saying to me. So it wasn't until I started to meet people who actually were recovering that I began to be hopeful that, actually recovery was possible. I did have to stop drinking and I did have to get rid of this awful bloke <laughs> I've referenced. Yeah. But well done. Yeah. And that they had to go that they had to go at the same time, by the way. The bloke and the booze had to go at the same time. But I actually wouldn't have been able to do that unless I believed that it was possible to completely change my life. And That became believable when I met people who were recovering. So a few years after that, I started to think mental health services need us. 
because where I met these peers was not within mental health services at all. It was mm-hmm. some kind of self-help outfit, yeah, which is hit and miss that you would find it when you're in the middle of mental health services, very hit and miss. And I thought you need peer support workers, peer people to go inside mental health services and reach in, yeah? And without that, we really are making a serious mistake. Recovery comes out of belief, the belief that you Mm. can, yeah? And you've got to create environments in which that belief is possible. I do have some kind of difficult kind of analysis of some of these realities, is that I do actually believe that people who were unwell in the way I was unwell can actually be a very bad influence on each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, what amazes me is that mental health services are aware of this. They are aware of people being a bad influence on each other they are less aware that they need to counteract that by people being a good influence on each other. There are some very dangerous peer environments, peer cultures that surround mental health services. And I don't actually believe that mental health services understand the full extent of how damaging those cultures are and why you need a peer workforce to counteract that not to mediate, but to be able to show professionals what's going on, almost to translate, to open a door. Lots of professionals having met me were quite surprised that I'd had a clinical diagnosis. And after they'd worked with me for a couple of weeks, they weren't that surprised. They also were really joyful to meet somebody who'd recovered because they'd been telling people all their lives it was possible to recover and had barely ever met any of their patients five or six years down the line or 23 years down the line who'd actually recovered. So they assumed it was rare, but it's not as rare as you might think. But I think there's something here that we need to talk about and have the conversation with mental health services about how necessary it is for us to build a peer workforce, for us to broaden the understandings of recovery and it's necessary for the mental health professionals at work in mental health services as well because what you get is a sort of repeating cycle of low expectation because you only ever see the people who don't recover because they keep coming back and going round and round in circles in the services and recovery is something that sort of disappears in a way It disappears if you're someone who uses the service because people disappear from the circuit of mental health services and you think, where have they gone? Yeah, and when I was in that really difficult circuit of mental health services, I used to assume people had taken their own lives. That's why they disappeared. And sometimes that had happened. But also, actually, people had started to recover and when I started to recover, I met some of them, who <laughs> people who I'd assumed had taken their own lives. And I just think wow. that's that must happen to people who work in the services as well, where they think, what's happened to that person? They never get to see the recovery. I think there's a really fundamental problem that mental health services don't understand recovery because, mm. and this isn't wrong, but it's too limited. It's not wrong, but it's too mm. limited, Yeah is that their job is to treat illness clinically. Yeah. And that's not wrong, but it's too narrow. That's the issue. And I I often have this really basic thing 
which is if you don't know what recovery looks like, how do you know what you're heading for? If recovery is simply not illness in the clinical view of services, how do you know what you're heading for if you don't actually know much about it? That's a good point. Do you know, that brings us so beautifully and perfectly to the next question, which is what is recovery anyway? What is it? Bloody hard work, but <laughs> yeah. it's not It's not as hard work as how I was before, yeah? So yeah, recovery to me is bigger than about illness. So if I'm to be frank, I think some of it is actually about illness. It is about having a mental health condition and having features of other mental health difficulties and how I personally can recover and control those difficulties and their complexities. And that's ongoing for me. That's still an ongoing issue. I still struggle with my mental health. And people do, I've noticed, you know, I've been around recovering people for a long time and I'm aware that people struggle with their conditions still to varying degrees yeah so there's a part of it that's more about condition and more about those difficulties but there's another more valuable part in some ways which is about life so it is about living the life that you want to live even if there are some limits imposed by living with conditions yeah. And one one of the things, I, I did have a very recovery-focused psychiatrist at one point. She was lovely. I remember her really well. She was well into her 70s and still practicing. So recovery is not new. When I was really unwell, she said to me, do you know, I think it was, I was starting to recover. I was very early stages of recovery. And she said, Angela, you need to stop thinking about how much your mental illness has wrecked your life and start realising that your life is making you ill. And it was, I had to change my life in order to get well. I, I had to stop accepting the things that I was accepting. I was accepting abuse. I was accepting that I couldn't be awake and not drinking because everything was too painful. I had to get rid of those realities. I had to do something very different with my life in order to recover clinically. Do you see? I had to mm. say to myself, I want a decent life, yeah? And then the recovery from the difficulties and the condition followed that, actually. Mm. And I think that's right, yeah? That is part of what we talk about when we talk about recovery, is that people's lives come first, yeah? It is about building a life which is as meaningful and as a high quality as it can be, yeah? And as unique as well yeah and it's self-defined there are some tough issues in it though really tough there are some really tough issues there are people I know or I come across who have really severe problems where I do ask myself where is the quality of life and I ask myself what are we collectively doing in mental health services to help this person I'm thinking about people who are labelled as chronic, usually with yeah. really severe psychosis. And peer support workers and peer trainers and all of us in the recovery movement, we're not naive about those realities. 
and those massive challenges. And we're also, I think in terms of recovery, we're not, we know it's not simple. The peer support workforce and the recovery college and all of those features of recovery services, we know we don't just come in, sprinkle some peer pixie ducks and it's all going to be right in the world, yeah? Yeah. We know that, yeah? What we're doing is we're building new professions. The aim of those professions is to sit alongside allied health professionals and doctors and nurses is to sit alongside and be involved in a multidisciplinary way yeah but our passion and our belief is that we can make a significant difference to mental health services but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to recover doesn't mean that there isn't going to be really big challenges I've wanted to do this before these roles existed Right at the beginning of my recovery journey, which is about 15 years ago, I thought people with mental health difficulties like mine should be working in mental health services. I didn't know Rachel Perkins was doing this and that in southwest London, and I didn't know about any of that at that stage. I was just going into my early recovery phase. I didn't really know. I just thought it's really obvious that we know stuff. I don't know quite how we would use what we knew, what we know, But I had this really deep, passionate belief that I know that we can make a difference. But it took me a while to find you guys. At first, I was just thinking that on my own and wondering if a job might arise at some point in the future. (laughs) I remember being told about these new roles and thinking, gosh, I could do that. I was thinking, I I want to do something that, that means something. And I wanted so much to help people I think I have and it's been the most incredible learning curve and the hardest job I've ever done but it's the only satisfying job I've ever done I have to be doing lots to be very busy or I get unhappy which is either some kind of clinical diagnosis (laughs) or just who I am and who knows (laughs) I think there are still lots of people out there who should be working in mental health services and aren't yet I feel like more roles need to be made available so many roles have been made available very recently I just mean that it needs to continue the next question is what is your most often used recovery tool mindfulness definitely I don't think it's a panacea for people lots of people don't get on with mindfulness yeah but for me it's definitely the one that I adopted very early on Mm. and that I've worked actually there's two tools the other one is that I go to self-help groups and I'd say that they both work in tandem they're my go-tos but the mindfulness is easier to talk about I have to deal with my internal reality in some way even now things can be very challenging and I can have thoughts that kind of drop emotional bombs on me it's really I, I still experience a lot of fear which I know to be trauma related but I'm still trying to make progress on it You don't ever learn how to do mindfulness completely. You just have to keep doing it. And I just keep doing it. And I don't think that I would have fared very well without mindfulness, if I'm frank. I think I may have even started drinking again because I had to find a way of developing a sense of calm within myself that wasn't harmful. And I had to work at it quite hard, but it's... Yeah, it does enrich my life. 
I might be joining a band of Buddhist monks based in South London when the pandemic kind of... I'm not sure about being a Buddhist monk. I'm thinking I'm the wrong gender for that, but I've been invited Mm -hmm. by a group of monks to join them. Would you have to shave your head? I do hope not. No, I don't think so, because the guy that's invited me has got hair. Excellent. (laughs) How did you get into your current role and what is it? What is it? (laughs) I can't remember when I went into my newest role. My new role is Advanced Lived Experience Educator at the Recovery and Wellbeing College. So I've always worked in the Recovery and Wellbeing College for about nine, ten years now. But I was a senior peer trainer there. And now I've gone up a bit. I was promoted at some stage during the pandemic. So leadership is part of it. So leadership of the peer side of the recovery college. My work's a bit more complicated is what it means. I'm responsible for more. So implicit within it is making sure that we do good training and supervision. Also really thinking with the other advanced lived experience practitioners and senior peer support workers. So making links with peer support and with the employment services going forward. Also responsibility for project management. So I've got projects to manage now. Research is part of it. I'm going to be doing a research project on digital inclusion. It's a piece of action research. We're testing a new peer role actually which is a peer IT trainer. We're going to see if we can extend our peer principles into peer IT training and whether this works as an intervention for people who are profoundly digitally excluded, people with psychosis. So that's one project. And then the other project is a compassion project in Grenfell. And that is partly a training project and partly a co-production project project but I get the privilege of managing projects now and putting a lot of work in to ensure that as far as possible that they're successful the two that are going they're very likely to be successful good good you do a lot so here's a tricky one describe your typical working day using only five words rewarding Mm -hmm. funny scary I've got three hang on emotional no, moving, not emotional. Moving mm-hmm. and proud. That's lovely. I like that funny is in there. I love that. So this is the big question, really. And then there's kind of two short biscuity questions. What are you most proud of in your work? One amazing story. I'm proud. My most recent proud is the Grenfell Project on the first day Everybody turned up. Wow. Wow. Did you have loads of people booked in? Everybody except one person, and that was simply an oversight, meaning that everything had come together in terms of galvanising it all. So a lot of work had gone into that, sort of launching it, yeah. We've got to see where it goes, and there's all sorts of things going on there. But we got to the first sort of marker of it, and all the sort of work in the background. I'm proud that it's launched now and we're in motion with it. What else? I think where I meet people, usually later, where I've had an impact on them. Yeah. And I haven't known necessarily. Very often with this kind of work, you don't know really at the time because you meet them later on in their story and they tell you. 
that I'm really proud of. I'm also proud of the knock-on effect of the job in my life because I do learn about recovery in other places, but recovery is contagious, yeah. You catch it from people. And my family's got better mental health now. That's good. And I think that's because I'm constantly... I've gone off a bit from what I'm really proud of, but it's like what the job gives to me as well. It it gives a lot to me that I then share in my family and personal networks. And recovery is contagious. I have family members who are weller than they were before because they've picked up from things that I'm doing and then they've done their own work. And it does. It is is contagious. There's nothing quite like walking the walk. It's that old quote be the change that you want to see that's where it becomes contagious I think people see you doing and then they think oh it might be worth me doing that I just think I talk about it a lot yeah you know and people learn I mean I'm proud of the college it's good and I'm proud of the people I work with I'm proud of it I'm proud of them I feel as if my role at the moment is to be less proud of my training because training isn't a big part of my job now yeah My job is to support others and lead others. I'm also, and it's with my new job, it's a bit hard to establish straight away because I think I do want to go into a research direction. And I've got to, I don't know whether that'll work out for me, but I've got a feeling lived experience research is where I want to go next. That makes a lot of sense. I could definitely see and want to read a paper written by you. Yeah, it's not so much about publishing, it's about, I, I think we need. A very, we need a stronger evidence base for what we're doing. We really do. Could I take a side swipe at psychiatry here? Yeah. Mm. Because I'm doing a presentation tomorrow, which has got me reading around the history of mental health services quite a bit, reading our articles about that. And one of the things that I've noticed is that everything has been a fight for so long. Yeah. So we think we're having to fight a lot as peer Mm. workers now. If you look at the history of it, that even psychiatry, sort of progressive elements of psychiatry have had to fight for the most basic things against what I see as a tide of discriminatory belief, actually. The closure of the asylums started in 19... the 1950s and didn't really finish until the 1980s it took all that time and you think why did it take all that time because people didn't want people out of the asylums yeah and there's been repeated failure to you know invest in community mental health services and then later on you could only invest in community mental health services if it was being justified that it was because people were dangerous so that like new labor had this big obsession with They did increase the funding in mental health services, but most of it was funneled to forensic. And then even things like IAPT, it had to be justified in terms of this is causing unemployment problems. So basically, mental health expenditure really has to be justified about it harming society. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's not until extremely recently as it's seen as meritable in its own terms and what does that say about society's attitude to people with mental health problems it's saying you don't count yeah and what we've had is a recent shift in this but I'm I'm skeptical about how deep 
that shift really is or whether it's there's a superficiality to it that it's just about people talking about their emotions it really isn't going to touch the sides in terms of more severe mental health difficulties that's to be sure but anyway it's just this feeling when you read the history of things that, that everything has been such a fight yeah so I think that's useful for the peer workforce actually to know that this is a characteristic of change in and around yep. mental health services, yeah? But the side swipe at psychiatry is, I think we're under pressure to develop an evidence base. Yep. Psychiatry carried on without one for many years and did... <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's why we're allowed to carry on without one? <laughs> well, but we didn't cut bits of people's brains out, you know? No, we just, we don't have the time, you know? <laughs> or the knives. <laughs> As a peer workforce, my serious point is we need to be allowed time to develop as a workforce, to develop as a profession and to develop an evidence base and not, right, if you don't get your evidence base right up, right here quickly. I mean, and also you can't develop an evidence base unless you've got a working workforce. Yeah. One of the things that compromises an evidence base is that if your peers are being co-opted into ordinary support roles, because of the cultures of mental health services, then how can you test whether peer support is working? You can't because it's not working as it should. I suppose my request to the mental health world out there is give us the space and the time and the resources to do this properly, and we will. I have no doubt, especially with you as one of our leaders, that things will get done and they'll be done well and considerately and with a lot of thought given to the breadth and depth of the subject and the difficulties as well, the barriers and and all those different things. Because I find that when you think about something, you think about it as a whole object. It's like you think in 3D. And that, I think, is absolutely essential for a researcher and also for a manager. So, yeah. Question seven is your favourite listening when you need a boost? I'm not sure about a boost, but I am very much into Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Brilliant. Could you pick one song? Yes. I am a little bit that some of his music, I love it, but it's a bit unlistenable. Yeah. Yeah. Like Trout Mask Replica and all that. But there is one album called Clear Spot, which is much more listenable. And there's a track on that called Her Eyes Are a Blue Million Miles. That sounds brilliant. It's a really beautiful track. Thank you. I'll put it in. Yeah. Put that one in. So finally, last but not least, and without wishing to trivialise very serious conversations, I think it's always absolutely essential when you're getting to know somebody to find out what their favourite biscuit is. What is your favourite biscuit and why? Do you know what? There's a bit of a problem with my biscuit thing because my very favourite biscuits no longer exist. (gasps) What were they? Well, when I was a kid, there was these incredible iced biscuits. They used to have pictures of cowboys on, princesses. They were in all different wild colours of the rainbow and they were quite thick, actually, The biscuits that equate to them now in the modern biscuit world are sports biscuits. The ones that are circular and they're all different colours, those iced biscuits and they're all different colours and they've got the wavy lines along them. That is their modern equivalent. But the ones in the 70s, they're retro biscuits that no longer exist. Nobody's revived them and I don't even know who made them. They're definitely real. I haven't constructed a false biscuit memory. 
fantasy biscuits. No, they sound familiar. Something about cowboys and princesses on icing on biscuits. They were like sports biscuits, except they were solid with no hole. They were thicker on their base. I used to get so excited by those biscuits. Fantastic. In a way that a child is much more biscuit-centred normally than an adult. There's yeah. a whole world of biscuits for a child. Yeah. So I suppose, modern biscuit-wise, don't ever buy me a pack of... They're not called sports biscuits. That was the second manifestation. There used to be a picture of sport on the back. They're circular. Party rings. They're party rings now. They were sports biscuits in the 80s, yeah. They've gone through several manifestations, the type of biscuits that I'm talking about. So was the icing crispy and hard? A lot thicker. But thicker, Yeah. yeah. So I can't ever buy you a packet of party rings because they're just made of disappointment if you buy me a packet of party rings i'll eat all of them within a day (laughs) which is why i'm asking you not to buy me them so what do you think how was it was it as torturous as you expected or was it quite good it was quite good i really enjoyed it i'm gonna let you get on with the rest of your evening thank you so much for being with me it was absolute pleasure oh yeah i've had fun thank you purple fiona good (laughs) thank you angela don't forget to follow me on at Fiona the PSW on Twitter. Upcoming episodes include all sorts of very interesting people and I very much look forward to having you as my listener again. Thank you.